Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly games club podcast discussing the worlds and workings of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And this month we're talking about Into the Breach. Um, You know, I would normally have a spoiler warning at this point, but there's not a ton to spoil in this game. Uh, That being said, Into the Breach is a turn-based strategy game uh, developed by and published by Subset Games, consisting of Justin Ma and Matthew Davis. So, two-man studio. This is sort of your classic indie darling. Uh, And it had a little bit of help from some other folks, I believe, uh, Music, Ben Prunty, who did their last game too, and Chris Avalone, who's a name I'm always happy to see on the box of games. Didn't they also do FTL? That's right, yeah. So, this is Subset's second game. Uh, FTL was their first, and... uh, they, I guess that game set them up pretty well for success. I think it got ported to pretty much everything. So this came out uh, in February 2018 for uh, Windows, and then shortly after for Nintendo Switch, which is actually where I picked it up and played it a ton. And um, I guess the reason where we picked this game to do is because, I mean, this game was just everywhere in 2018. I think it made it on a lot of... It punched above its weight class in terms of games of the year. Uh, and, you know a lot of praise for this little gem and, and I totally see why it's, it's a very streamlined. A lot of good examples of good design in this game. Yeah. Somehow I missed it, but you're right. It was on every, like you got to play this game list of the year. So what, what did you guys play it on? I played on switch. Brian, you played it on switch. Same here. I just got a switch this last Christmas and now I can finally rejoin the modern glit gaming clan. Yeah. I think this is such a good like game for the Switch too because it's so easy to like pick up and put down at a moment's notice and uh you know the Switch obviously does well for that being a portable console and everything. So I uh I don't know. I this game was has made plane rides go by extremely quick for me. It's uh one of those games that I think you're right, Josh. It's just like got a lot going for it. It's easy to recommend. It's so bite-sized too. Like uh, it, it all consists of like these little mini maps that you know take five turns. That's what ten minutes of your time at most. So you can do it in between chores, whatever. It's it was real easy to it was real easy to play. You know, I wonder part of that if part of that comes from the Switch having. Uh, I guess sleep capabilities, hibernation mode or whatever, where you turn it off and you can turn it back on and be right where you were. There's not a lot of load times, not a lot of anything like that going on. At least for me, that kind of contributed towards that bite-sizedness even more, where you can just pick it up and play for five minutes. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, even more so, like, the the fact that it's turn-based makes that extra easy. Uh, you know, it's asynchronous in terms of how the the timeline goes. And then those missions only take about five to ten minutes each. So yeah, I guess it's worth mentioning just sort of what the, the framework for this game is. Uh, it's set in a very far future, uh, sort of like a post-climate crisis Earth, where humanity fights against um, an army of giant monsters called the Vec. So you basically control a bunch of mechs, so Vex versus mechs. And you basically control three mechs in a, a stage, and sometimes you get little allies or things that come in alongside you. And it uses, as we've talked about, turn-based uh, combat system that allows the player to basically see and coordinate their unit's actions, and then uh, they'll act when you decide to execute them. Um, the framing for this game from a story perspective is that uh, the Earth's timeline at some point was just sort of irrevocably doomed, and you are 
uh, basically jumping timelines to go back in time to try and save the past, basically, so that your future can end up less screwed. <laughs> I actually liked how that played out in the game, too, because uh, because you're from the future, you they kind of played it in where you know what the guys are going to do next. So you see the enemy's next turn before uh, they do it, and then you have a, a turn to basically counteract what they're about to do, which I thought was kind of cool. Did they have that as a in-game justification? I missed that. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. They, they that's why you can see that what the enemy's moving. They basically call out that like since you you know what they're going to do, that's why you get the the sense of information that you have on all of the uh, enemy's movements. And I thought it was a really like slick diegetic justification for that. Oh, for sure. I'm I'm a fan of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it made it very unique. Not I've not, I'm not seen another turn-based game do that where they basically tell you what they're going to do before they do it and then I can't believe that it's as hard as it is. Even knowing what they're going to do, it's still extremely hard to beat this game. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, as we as I mentioned up top, although this game was, you know, basically the brainchild of Justin Ma and Matt Davis, I could see the little Chris Avalon touches since he helped with the writing. Uh, he's an extremely talented writer-designer guy, and um, this game is light on text, but at the same time, it all conveys what it has to very quickly and well. And I think his writing in terms of keeping you interested and in doing that sort of timeline justification stuff is super apparent to me, at least. What else has he done that you like? So, yeah, he uh, was the lead writer on Planescape Torment, uh, lead designer and writer on Alpha Protocol, if you've played that, uh, Fallout New Vegas, Prey, Destiny, Divinity Original Sin 2, Pillars of Eternity, Tyranny, sort of, you know, this is basically a, a who's who of, like, those Infinity Engine-type games. Gotcha. And he... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably worth pointing out at this point, like, the music as well is, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys played FTL, but that FTL soundtrack became, like, my working music for a long time because it's just sort of chill and uh, atmospheric, and it doesn't, you know, it puts you in a relaxing mood, but at the same time, it calls you to action. I think this game's music does a similar thing. It's got a real good feel. Yeah, almost to the point that it, it just fits and you don't even really pay that much attention to it. Because it just seems to fit. It fades into the background and sort of completes the mood. Coming back a little bit to talking about the different timelines that the pilots would go on, I thought one of the interesting things about this was that, you know, the game justifies we have infinite timelines, that's why you have infinite playthroughs to go through. And after you beat the game, the three pilots, instead of saying, hey, we're going to um, we're going to stick around here and retire and be happy, they're like, well, time to go off to another timeline now and fight this infinite war that literally will never end until we die yeah it's it's both depressing and like fatalistic but also like kind of badass <laughs> it definitely it definitely makes you feel like uh pretty cool when you do do the victory but it also kind of immediately deflates you because it's like well back at it <laughs> and uh i i think what what we're getting at here is like what if um Obviously, there's a ton more failed attempts at restoring t- or saving timelines than there are positive ones, right? But what if in you know the world of people that play this game, people 
just started winning and winning and winning and winning. Do you think eventually they would catch up and close out all the loops on the failed timelines? <laughs> uh, guys, I'm not contributing to that winning number, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're in a big you're in a big deficit. Correct. <laughs> I might be bringing yeah. you down. Uh, well, that's okay. I never want there to be a uh, you know a lack of uh, future futures to save in this game because I find it quite enjoyable. So, um, you know, if you keep failing, then that just means I get to save more timelines, I guess. Uh, what I thought would have been kind of nice is to have some sort of meta story that goes on overall over the different games you play because you play one game and it, apart from the, you know, the monsters you fight and whatnot and the items you and weapons that you come across... There's really not a lot of difference narrative-wise between one or the other. If you could see like um, some character development across those different timelines, like I don't know, maybe this one guy was sentenced to um, sentenced to prison and sentenced to be executed. Except instead of um, being executed, he has to go through ten timelines and clean those up, and then he's free to go. Or just something to continue the storyline and get some character development. Because I felt like the characters had personality without having and much of a story in there. You're right. The- There's characters, but no arc. Um, yeah, and I, I, I agree. It would be nice to see it fleshed out a little bit more in terms of, like you said, something that overarched between runs. But as it is, this game's kind of, like, it very much leans into that run-based gameplay, uh, like so many roguelikes do. And um, to that end, it doesn't, it, you know, it's kind of built to always end up in the same spot rather than have something progressive that being said there is a progress in what you're unlocking you know new mechs etc also true there's some mechanical progression for sure yeah i would have liked to see a little bit more of that i I found myself so i really enjoyed started playing and then i you know i fail 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 maybe it's because i'm not good at the game but i was hoping that there would be (laughs) something more okay so we've talked about roguelikes before and the one thing that you get how you quote unquote level up is is you learn what's going on and then you get to take that knowledge basically you the player are leveling up and you get to take that new knowledge and you take it back and you're better now but in this game it's different every time so you're not really getting that knowledge based level up so I would have liked to see more carryover, something to keep me coming back. I feel like I learned a lot of tricks over the course of playing this game that made me better at it. Like the first time you realize you can push a VEC into the water, or the first time you know you push a VEC into another VEC, or push pull the VEC into yourself so that it damages it. Like there's a lot of like little tactical things that you learn, and I, I do think you can bring that knowledge back and, and quote unquote be better the next time but i do hear what you're saying like it's not something and i'm glad for this it's not something that's the same every time and you can anticipate moves because you know this the levels are semi-randomized etc etc right the replayability was good because of that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's one of those things where there's definitely like a balance and a trade-off there and i think they made the right choice yeah in the game when you go to a mission you end up with different layouts of the cities and the buildings you have to protect and then different objectives and different enemies that you have to fight. And the combination of those three things means that it's um, it's rare to find uh, you're in a situa- the same situation you've been in before. And then there's those four different islands you can go to, each of which has their own personalities in terms of environmental hazards and 
what you got to save or go for. Uh, I guess to the point that there is a plot in this game, I guess it's kind of you writing the story of your run, right? Like how you're upgrading your various mechs, what kind of tools you're using, uh, you know, and where, where and when you end up confronting your final either victory or defeat. Because um, that's something we haven't talked about yet is, you know, this game basically has you hopping from island to island, liberating them. And you can choose the islands in whatever order you want. And then after you liberate, I think it's two, the end game opens up to you. And you can either choose to continue to liberate additional islands for maybe more power-ups, or you can head right to the boss. What do you guys think about that design decision to allow you to beat the game halfway through the game? I I think it's good because they do scale the difficulty down for the final boss. And if, if you're in a real good position after two islands, I think that's where I actually had the most success. Like, I think I've done more two island victories than four island victories. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. It's I think they scale the difficulty, and it is easier after two, maybe, than it is after four. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like it's a interesting choice that they allow you not to go through the whole thing. And Clint, how did you feel? Uh, did you rush headlong into your death early or late in most games? <laughs> uh, because I, I was missing a few key pieces, again, that you could buy back pieces of your power grid, which was devastating. So I would normally go straight for it after two because there was no making it through more than that. Now that I figured that out, I've gotten a little better. I think, too, I need to work on some of those achievements so I can unlock some of the other... Um, some of the other met groups did you guys experiment much with other um met groups oh yeah i uh i would say and maybe this is a good time as any to say like which ones were our favorites um, i'm assuming josh it sounds like you unlocked them all right i did not get the 10th squad and i never played with a custom or a random squad either but i went through with nine and i think i beat it with four of those yeah, I, I've i unlocked all but two of the squads, I think, and my favorite were by far the uh, the Rusting Hulks, um, the second squad you most people unlock. Oh no, it's the Sandstorm people, yeah. The... Yeah, yeah, the one with the dust. I did unlock it, but I haven't, I haven't uh, experimented with that yet. Can you mix and match? You can. Okay. And uh, the game, I've never played with a custom squad either, um, but... It seems like it'd be hard to choose a good squad. Like, I'm sure there's one that's, like, the perfect squad, quote-unquote, but I do feel like they set them up already to be fairly complementary of each other. So I didn't mess with that too much. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, The squads are set up to, like, have different personalities. Like, uh, the Rusting Hulks try to use their sandstorms to cancel enemy attacks and um, cause damage to them that way. Uh, I used... um, I, I liked Blitzkrieg, and I liked the Flame guys a lot, too. Both of those did good. I thought I would like the Steel Judoka guys, the guys that are into repositioning the enemies, but that one was a lot harder than I <clears throat> thought it would be to use. To me, that that squad seemed like a more difficult version of the first squad, the Riftwalkers, because the Riftwalkers played with repositioning quite a bit as well, and they also just had a mech that was good at going up to enemies and punching the crap out of them, which was nice. Always helpful. (laughs) Punching things in the face. Yeah, that's a good mech. I think my favorite is actually that jet mech that the Rusting Hulks have that, like, hops the enemy and shoots it and causes a cloud. Um, Once you start getting that and combining it with, like, the cloud causes damage and your troops are immune to the damage cloud or the effects of the cloud don't harm them or whatever. I think... 
that just got to be super powerful for me. Did you find you uh, that you were buying new weapons a lot when you got power cores, or, or were you spending money on weapons, or were you spending money on getting new power cores so you could have more health and move, or what was what was your strategy there? If I saw a weapon I liked, I would buy it. Um, there's a lot of weapons that I just didn't feel like were very additive to my strategies that I like to employ. So uh, if I saw something that looked compelling and useful, I bought it. But there's a lot of stuff I just left on the shelves because I didn't feel like I needed it. Yeah, if I saw a good weapon, then I'd go for that. But otherwise, either getting some reactor cores to unlock upgrades on your weapons or to get uh, more energy as well. Yeah, having like, uh, I'm trying to remember, there's like the the ramming mech. Getting that guy and then finding a way to like reduce damage on him was like also pretty unstoppable because he did a ton of damage, but the downside was always that he damaged himself. And mm-hmm. if you could negate you could negate that or add extra energy for him, then he becomes much more powerful. So there's a way to like use your cores to shore up the weaknesses of your team um, rather than specifically just going after buying new weapons and stuff. I think it's interesting like that you get they they added this whole economy into the game like with using um, rep, I think it's what it's called to to buy you know upgrades or cores or whatever and it's interesting, like, you'd think that in an end-of-the-world scenarios, you wouldn't have to be bartering with these corporation <laughs> but Yeah, all those CEOs. The capitalism is still very much alive in an end-of-the-world scenario. Yeah. <laughs> and the only people you ever actually talk to are CEOs. The only mm-hmm. other voices in the game are, like, your pilots or people shouting out the window saying, Look, giant robots! Or, oh, <laughs> God, we're screwed. <laughs> I saw that one a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. Like, despite how like light the game is, on as I as we said on text, they do a lot of a lot of legwork, f- sort of framing the world and and fleshing it out a little bit. Like, there's a lot of flavor there if you look for it. Just enough so it didn't feel empty for sure. So, getting more into the mechanics, uh, we guys talked about this a little bit earlier about how the time travel ability you have lets you see what the enemies are going to do. This game, I think, was different from a lot of tactical games I've seen before in that you have perfect information. Like Brian said, it's a game of chess. You know what everything can do, where and when, and you even know what the enemy's next move is going to be. So you can change that around. You can go after the ones who are going to damage whoever, um, but there isn't. they aren't holding anything back. Everything's discrete, too. Your mech does one damage or two damage. Uh, there's no, like, you roll a dice and you do this much damage here. I don't I don't think for a single, um, not a single weapon or ability I've seen has there anything been randomized. No, there's, this is very much a game where, like, uh, you execute something, it happens. Like, there is only one instance of, like, chance I can even think of in this game, and it's sometimes if your buildings are attacked, they'll be saved. Like, they'll oh, be yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the only, the, really the only random occurrence that I am aware of in this game. And th- there's a lot that goes into this game's perfect information. Like, I want to make sure we talk about the game's UI, because it's amazingly clear and extremely effective. And I love a good small numbers RPG where, you know, it's one you or have two three damage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, uh, it, it's all very parsable. The more information there is in a system, the harder it becomes to predict and this game has a low amount relatively low amount of information and so most of it's able to be predicted and parsed pretty easily Mm -hmm. um while we've been talking about all these different 
mechanics and their interactions, there's a surprisingly number, a small number of moving parts in this game, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. Um, I'd kind of divide the abilities into damage dealing abilities and then to kind of movement abilities where you move the enemy vec you move the giant spider from one square to another and all of a sudden it's not attacking the city it's attacking a harmless mountain or something like that and it was very interesting how much of the tactics revolved around this repositioning of the enemies in order to get them to a more um i don't know beatable state i was gonna say tactic games have a habit of just getting way too overcomplicated and to the point where it's just like not even fun i don't need to read an encyclopedia to figure out how to beat this game i'll I'll end up putting it down long before i keep getting good enough to beat it now this game still not great at it but it was at least fun enough and simple enough that i'm going to keep going back and try try to get better so you may not be good at it but you understand how you could be yeah (laughs) correct I, i I think my biggest problem was lack of information on a couple of the systems, but like I said, you slowly figure it out, you slowly get better. The only other thing that I came up with while we were talking just now is the contents of the shop. Those are also randomized, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Or the time pods, the little treasure chest that uh, fall up from the sky and you have to go save from the enemies. Yeah, I think I was on like my 15th one before I ever realized a pilot could come out of there. Hmm. And that's extremely <laughs> valuable. Like, we, we didn't mention that, but you only have, what, maybe, is it one pilot off the bat? Yeah. And and then you uh, rescue others throughout the course of the game. And pilots give your mechs, like, little bonuses. Like, one can not be affected by smoke. One gives you an extra reset, which isn't a mechanic we haven't talked about yet. Oh, wow. You can, yeah. That'd be a good gives one. Gives you two resets instead of one. Once per per game you can reset your turn like if you have a big fuck up um you can reset that turn and it goes back to sort of the the starting state of a turn and you sort of can rerun the scenario in your mind or on the game that's a big one for me for sure because i'm playing on switch and the a and b buttons are opposite than a and b on (laughs) playstation or on xbox so all these times where i thought i'd hit back i actually got to uh the first time I got to a, a boss for an island, I was, I thought I was hitting back, and I hit A, and I destroyed the corporate headquarters, and we lost. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is the worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, it's funny. Like, the game only gives you one of those, but, man, you got to make good use of that thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I kind of see it as a extension of their perfect information kind of um, their philosophy there, that you should have all the information around there. And there's not tons of crazy, complicated systems with lots of moving parts. But if you do make a mistake here, we'll be very forgiving and just say, hey, take it all back, go back to over here. This game has an easy mode, one, and I think it's very well done because I'll be honest, I played like probably most of my games in this on easy um, because I want to see more of the game. Um, And it makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) But um, I think that... Adding additional redos, like additional turn resets, would be a good way to increase the easiness of the game without sacrificing anything on the mechanical side, you know? Like, it's an easy switch to flip and make the game a little bit easier. You talked a little bit about the UI before. I wanted to touch on that. I thought one of the really nice touches in the game was that when you're 
selecting a weapon or choosing between different attacks or something like that, it shows you very clearly on a little tiny video off to the side what that weapon's going to do. It shows you where the movement's going to do. It shows you what the damage is going to be. Everything you want to know about how to use that weapon, it gives you a tiny demonstration about it. Yeah, that is a... And actually, I... Uh... I listened to a interview podcast with Justin Ma as a prep for this, and he said that was one of the biggest breakthroughs they had on the game's design was switching that from like a little paragraph explaining what the thing did to just putting a little like GIF video in there showing everything. Just sort of completely, it made everything easier in terms of understanding the game. Like you're absolutely right, Josh, that a picture is worth a thousand words, and this is basically a video is worth a thousand pictures. So we're talking like a million words in usefulness <laughs> with just that one little GIF there. I'm sorry, did you say GIF? Yeah, yes. I was I was going to call you on that too, but that's okay. <laughs> what? I, you, I you hate guys, your Don't guts. tell me you're a giffer. I'm a giffer. We, uh, giffer. I'm, last time I checked, the dude who invented the GIF calls it a GIF, so... GIF is peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> What's a GIF? <laughs> GIF's nothing. <laughs> All right, well, now, the, I mean, tangent aside, um, <laughs> let's just call it a tiny little embedded video and be done with it. And That's man, much easier. Yeah. <laughs> yes, tiny embedded video. Less argument. I call that a teave. Teave, yes. The, the classic teave. <laughs> Really, the, the whole game broke open as soon as we <laughs> include the Teeves. <laughs> we uh, did this game into the breach. Uh, right on the heels of doing Brogue, kind of the modern roguelike over there. And I kind of wanted to do these two together as a pair to say like, hey, this is kind of what the roguelike is, and this is an example of that design philosophy transmuted through the rogue light filter into something that kind of transcends the dungeon crawler. Um, and I was wondering what you guys thought about some of the things this took from the roguelike philosophy. There's a couple things I have to start off with. First, it expects you to die early and often until you know what you're doing, and then you can kind of start picking yourself up by your bootstraps over there. It does have procedurally generated environments, even though if I feel like at the point I'm at, there's no... There's less variety over there. There's no surprises. And that'll happen with everything eventually. But the procedural generation, the little arenas are small and tight enough that there's not as much room for that kind of emergent interaction to come out of it. Um, No different systems interacting with each other so much. Everything's very tightly controlled, which that's how it's got to go for this game. It's perfect information. Emergent action is the opposite of what they're going for. They want everything to be known ahead of time so you can plan for it. But, uh, but those were the two big things I came from that, or I got from that. One other thing that I think is useful in thinking about this as a, uh, something in the vein of roguelikes is that it is still on the classic grid. Um, a lot of roguelikes occur on a grid. This game occurs on a grid. Um, it's an easy way to sort of discreetly measure movement and tactics and 
doing that in a roguelike is important. Doing that in this game is important. Um, it's another sort of, I think, holdover from that evolutionary line that is useful to think about this game. Well, we could uh, move on to maybe comparing this with uh, their previous game, Faster Than Light, because I certainly saw a lot of similarities myself. Have you guys played that? Yes. I have not. It's, so FTL is, in my opinion, way harder than this. Um, and I think it's because of that randomness and entropy that we, that I was talking about earlier. There's just a lot more shit that can go wrong, uh, like perhaps a cat getting up in your, uh, <laughs> your webcam. <laughs> Say hi <laughs> to <a> lot... Oscar. <laughs> hi, Oscar. Um, there's a lot more shit that can go wrong in FTL than there is in Into the Breach. And um, in addition to that, a lot less certainty about whether you're going to get enough upgrades and gear to be prepared for the final encounter. I feel like if you're smartly working your way through into the breach, you're coming out the other end of approaching the end boss pretty well equipped. Like to me there's not there's a there's a lot more opportunity to just make your ship better or your your mechs better rather than an FTL where you were kind of hoping you'd run across that perfect confluence of weapons, sails, and uh, basically not run into a star system where one of your crew members suddenly disappears for no reason. Mm-hmm. I'd say one of the big differences uh, between this and that is that in this game, it was very much combat-focused. It's combat, 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 and nothing to do outside of that. Whereas Faster Than Light, you had a lot more of the kind of exploration that... I don't know. I, did you guys ever see the original Kickstarter trailer for that game? I didn't. It was much more kind of like a tile-bridged, you are the starship Enterprise, and you're going exploring everywhere, and there's people running around different rooms in an isometric tile format. Um, and I, it kind of stuck with me that they were going for a Star Trek in that and FTL, I feel, went more with that with the exploration of a system. You have that time pressure in terms of the rebel fleet coming after you, but it's still yeah. a lot of exploration and encounters and not necessarily combat all the time. To beat that game, you still have to take down the flagship at the end of the, the run of FTL. And that is just a huge like, come-to-Jesus moment on, is your ship able to kill this bigger, more powerful ship. Like, your combat expertise is the final thing that's tested in that game, and there's no escaping it. There's no, like, talking your way out of the final solution um, for that game. Now, everything's very combat-directed in that you judge all the choices through how it makes your ship better or worse. Less role-playing in that sense. Yeah. Clint, what was that? I was just going to see if, if either one of you beat that game. No, I didn't. I never beat it. It was too hard. <laughs> too much? Well, how long was, like, a run? Like, you said this is a crazy last boss. Like, th- there are games that, that suffer from being a wonderful game the whole time, and they throw a final boss at you that's just... They ramp the difficulty up, like, five times, and it's just almost in- impassable. It, it's definitely... I don't know. I think a, a run of FTL took, like, maybe what an hour and a half yeah an hour a little over an hour yeah. okay that's not terrible so it's not terrible probably similar to what you could do a uh, an into the breach run with and i think maybe that's the most important through line of these two games is they're both run based one of the things another similarity i noticed between the two is that they had um 
different loadouts you could select at the beginning of each mission, either a squad or a ship and a crew to take, and then different achievements based on that ship and that loadout, which were di- interesting ways for them to get you to explore the edges of the mechanical system instead of just sticking with, here's our basic thing, or saying like, um, telling you kind of how to use the squad too. I remember there was one squad we had where... They had an achievement for blocking four enemies in one round, like uh, blocking four enemies rising up from the bottom. You can do that with good positional skills, but if that since that achievement is there, you're thinking, okay, how can I arrange that? And you're already kind of trying to think about what tactics are specific to the squad that can get you there. I think they used achievements very nicely in both games. I agree. Uh, I don't remember the achievement system in FTL, but I really enjoyed it in Into the Breach, um, mostly because I learned a lot from just reading them. Um, Like, (laughs) uh, reading each of the uh, achievements in the list as I unlocked a new team was a way for me to, one, figure out how to play that team, and two, you know, learn tactics that could be employed across teams, because there's a a lot this game doesn't tell you. Um, As simple as it is, there's always going to be like a weird little tactical, you know, trick that the game will teach you on your 25th run or whatever. And then you're like, oh, you know, you have a light bulb moment. Hmm. Achievements as tutorials. I like mm-hmm. it. So for me, I would give this game two thumbs up. I quite enjoyed it. This is my first time taking a switch on an airplane, too. And it made the, like Brian said, it made the time fly. Uh for me, my three-word review is Tiled Tadix Distilled. Uh, because you have that discrete tile-based movement kind of thing, the manipulation of enemy positions, you have the tactical element, enough said about that, and then it's a very... There's not a lot of superfluous sort of things going on here. There's not a lot of unneeded complexity, and that's why I think this game scored so highly on a lot of Game of the Year list, is because... It had its rules, and a lot of the consequences emerged from the rules, so it wasn't a lot of added-on kind of things. Definitely. Clint? This is, uh, surprisingly, a thumbs-up for me. Um, Tactics games are not my kind of game, but uh, I actually really enjoyed their special take on this. Um, I'll be playing it on the plane tomorrow to Vegas, and I hope I'll finally beat it (laughs) on my way there. (laughs) but um, my three-word review was uh, Time Warp Tactics, and I just really like how they did this differently from everybody else, and that, again, you knew what the enemies were going to do, and you have a chance to react to all that, and it really gave it uh, like a fresh fresh take on, on, an old, um, on an old thing, and I think it played out really well. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to round us out. Uh, I don't think there's a big surprise when I say that I also super enjoyed this game. Uh, this is a two-thumbs-up for me, too. Uh, and my three-word review is Four-Dimensional Chess. Uh, a lot of, I guess there's an expression out there these days where if you're doing something very complex and beating the world, uh, so to speak, you are playing three-dimensional chess when everyone else is playing checkers or whatever. Uh, this game makes you feel like that a lot. And given that you are working in four dimensions, uh, you know, height, width, depth, and time, I am calling this four-dimensional chess as my three-word review because uh, this game made me feel like I was a four-dimensional chess master. And... Looking to next month, uh, we are going to be taking on Undertale. Uh, This is the Kindness RPG from Toby Fox. It's light on time to play, but heavy on emotional impact. Uh, So 
get ready to jam with some seriously awesome tunes in the soundtrack and um, try not to shed a tear as we talk our way into the hearts of the monsters in the land of Undertale. For this month's Video Game Book Club uh, from Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skirsha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Keep keeping it real. The only other thing I was going to say was that uh, I'm glad we did this one because I would not have played this on my own. So this is a prime example of why this book club's awesome because why we got the book club. For sure. Amen. Right. Yeah.